go. Hi, this is Alan Dershowitz. Welcome back to The Dersh Show. I say welcome back because many of you tuned into The Dersh Show through the summer of this past year. Now we've taken a hiatus and, and we're back and we're being sponsored uh, on the platform of Rumble. And I want to first take a moment to thank Rumble, thank uh, Chris Bovlovsky, who started Rumble. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of Rumble. I love Rumble because it doesn't censor. Rumble is the First Amendment in action. Rumble is what the founders of our Constitution wanted the town square, the marketplace, to look like. Rumble is the kind of platform that would have welcomed Thomas uh, Paine and, and, and Thomas Jefferson and, and, and James Madison and people with dissenting points of view, even Brahmins, people who, who were Tories, probably who didn't want to have the revolution. They would have been welcomed on Rumble. Rumble welcomes everybody, and the Der Show welcomes everybody. No censorship, no cancellation, no shutting down anybody. Debate, yeah, I don't agree with you, and I don't promise to say I think your ideas are are terrific, uh, I will respond. Debate, dialogue, discourse, not cancellation. That's what Rumble's about. That's what the Der Show is about. First, let me introduce myself for those of you who may not know me. I've been a law professor for, it's now, what, 55 years. Uh, I started teaching at Harvard Law School in 1964, but I was never satisfied just to teach. I always was a defense counsel. I've been involved in something like 30 homicide cases, one about 25 of them, and uh, been involved in probably a couple of hundred uh, other litigations ranging from representing two presidents of the United States uh, in impeachment proceedings, uh, a prime minister of uh, Israel, uh, a president of Ukraine, uh, various senators, congressmen, Ted Kennedy, one of my first big cases, was helping Ted Kennedy in, in Chappaquiddick. So I've been deeply involved as a, a litigator. I've also been a writer. I'm just finishing my 50th book, 50th book, and uh, a thousand uh, articles. Uh, so the other day I was in a flea market and I found a great button. It says, it's the quote from, uh, obviously, the, fa the famous poem, Two Roads diverged in a yellow wood. And of course the poem says, I took the one less traveled, but the button says, two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and I took them both. That's my life. I took them both. I couldn't be just a teacher, an academic. I couldn't be just a practitioner or a litigator. I wanted to have it all. I wanted to do everything. I wanted to be everything. And you know, maybe I spread myself too thin. That's up to you to decide. But in my 60 years of public life, I'm now 83 years old, in my 60 years of public life, um, written, taught, litigated, fought, now <laughs> my life has changed. For um, almost 60 years, I've defended the free speech of other people. I've defended defendants, both guilty and innocent. And now, at age 83, I've been accused. I've been censored. I've been canceled. I was accused of having sex with a woman I never met. And I proved it, of course, and it's in litigation. But who would have expected that that would 
be the way I spend the last years of my life. I never had a lawsuit in my life up to age 75. I never sued anybody. I was never sued. I always defended other people. Now, lawsuits, half my day is spent on depositions and interrogatories and and, and, and I'm defending myself. And it's really interesting after so many years of defending other people to defend yourself. You really understand what it means to be accused, falsely accused in my case, in many cases that I've defended, sometimes falsely accused, sometimes truthfully accused, sometimes overstatedly accused. But I'm always defending other people. Now I'm defending myself along with other people. I haven't given up defending other people. I'm defending lots and lots and lots of other people throughout the world. I have people I'm defending uh, literally in, in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, uh, in many parts of the United States. And so I continue an active life defending others, but I'm spending too much of the time defending myself. But this show is not going to be about that. It's going to be mostly about my ideas, mostly about how I deal with issues. Now, who am I? Uh, I'm a liberal Democrat. People now say, how can you be a liberal Democrat? You defended Donald Trump. No, I'm a liberal Democrat. I've been a liberal Democrat all my life. Never voted for a Republican candidate for president. Probably never will. Who knows? I don't know who's going to run in 2024. I always keep my options open. But I'm a liberal Democrat. But I'm not a leftist. I'm not somebody who identifies as a radical, knee-jerk, leftist, progressive. No, that's not me. I'm a centrist, liberal, libertarian. I care more about free speech, due process, the opportunity for all points of view to be heard, uh, rational dialogue and discourse, than I care about results. I know that in politics, you win some, you lose some. The Supreme Court now is not necessarily to my liking. Um, most of the justices were appointed by Republicans. I would much prefer if all nine justices were like my friend Stephen Breyer or my former dean Elena Kagan, but that's not democracy. Democracy is whoever wins the election gets to make the appointments and the Senate gets to, gets to confirm. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk today about Stephen Breyer's resignation, retirement uh, from the Supreme Court, who is going to replace him, and a range of, um, of other issues. Uh, we're going to talk about all kinds of issues on the show. Look, my specialty, obviously, is constitutional law, criminal law, but I care deeply about lots of other issues as well. I care deeply about the Middle East, uh, about Israel. I care deeply about anti-Semitism, any kind of bigotry. Uh, of any kind, because bigotry against anyone is bigotry against everyone. So we'll, we'll talk about uh, those issues. We'll talk about politics. We'll ask the question, if you were the head of the Democratic Party, and suddenly, this is a hypothetical, I'm a law professor, I'm entitled to give you hypotheticals. You're the head of the Democratic Party, and um, uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, who I've known for 42 years, calls you on the phone and says, you know, I've had it. I'm, I'm not going to run for, for re-election. Uh, please nominate a good person who can win. Who would you nominate? Who would be your preferred choice? Who do you think could beat whoever runs for the Republicans? Who's going to run for the Republicans? That may depend on who gets the nomination for the Democrats. Who gets the nomination for the Democrats may depend on who's going to run for the Republicans. 
Will it be a repeat? Uh, Biden versus Trump? I doubt that. It could be. Will it be Hillary Clinton? Who knows? Uh, all of these are possibilities. So we'll talk about uh, issues of, of that kind as well. And we'll talk about issues that you care about. I want to get your input. This is, after all, part of a, a dialogue, an interactive dialogue. I want to hear from you. I want to know what your concerns are. What, what I don't like in America is the way we've become divided. You know, there's an old expression, are you a good Scotsman? If you're a good Scotsman, it means you do everything the way Scotsmen do it. You eat your porridge the way they do it. You part your hair the way they do it. You're either a good Scotsman or you're not a Scotsman at all. That's the way America has uh, divided. You're either a good Democrat or a good progressive or, 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 or a good Republican. You can't do what I do. And, and that is, I pick and choose. If I think the Democrats are right about something, I'm with them. If I think the Republicans are right about something, I'm with them. For example, I didn't vote for Donald Trump either time, but I strongly supported his approach to uh, Israel, to recognizing Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel, to recognizing the Golan Heights as an integral part of uh, Israel legitimately captured in a defensive uh, war. Uh, so I supported that point of view. On the other hand, when uh, President Trump wanted to close the American embassy in East Jerusalem, an embassy that caters to the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Jerusalem, I opposed that. I was not a good Scotsman for Trump. I'm not a good Scotsman for uh, Democrats. I'm going to always make decisions based on what I think is best for America, what I think is best for the world, and, and I hope you will share that. There aren't too many people or too many things I dislike, but among the things I dislike, and you'll hear it on the show, is certainty. I don't like certainty. It was the great Judge Learned Hand who said that the spirit of liberty is the spirit that is not too sure it is right. The First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, due process, they're all based on uncertainty. If we have certainty, we don't need free speech. If you know what the right answer is, what do you need to have dissenting views? If you know whether a person is guilty or innocent without a trial, what do you need due process? So certainty and dogma are the enemies of intellectual and, and, and concerns uh, about truthing, the truthing process, finding a truth. That's why I've always been opposed to dogma of every kind, whether it be religious dogma, scientific dogma. I'm a skeptic. I'm a skeptic about everything. I'm a skeptic about religion. I'm a skeptic about science. I'm a skeptic about Darwinism, evolution. Do I think it explains everything? No, I, I don't think it explains everything. Do I think the Bible explains everything? No, I don't think so. I think I live, we live in a world of checks and balances. We all learned in civics what checks and balances mean. Three divisions in the government, executive, legislative, and judicial, each checks on the other. That's a limited notion of checks and balances. In a real democracy, everybody checks on everybody else. Science checks on religion. Religion checks on science. The academy, business, the media, they all serve as checks on having too much centralized power. That's why I worry about what's going on with the social media. Today, Twitter and Facebook and other social media, private, private, not governmental, have much too much control over what we see and what we read. 
And that's why I wrote a book against the new censorship, censorship by private institutions. Um, I recently wrote another article called The Private State, how private industry is taking over many government functions, functions including who gets to see what and read what, including elections. We now have private companies doing basically electoral uh, verification. Uh, we have private organizations running our prisons. Uh, we have so many private entities doing so much of what government used to do. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And, you know, mostly the answer to my questions is rarely going to be yes or no. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It has good elements. It has bad elements. Depends. Depends on priorities. It depends on how much power is given to private organization. It depends on whether there are checks and balances against them as well. And so we're going to be discussing all of these, all of these issues. It, in some respects, it will be like a seminar at, at, at Harvard uh, Law School. For 50 years, I taught seminars on every subject. You know, in 50 years of teaching, I taught 50 different seminars, 50 different courses. I always taught one course that was the same. Usually it was criminal law, constitutional criminal procedure. That was the same. But every year I taught different courses. The last course I ever taught at Harvard Law School was Shakespeare and the Law. I taught it with a great man named Alan Stone who just died a week ago at age 92. I'll miss him enormously. We taught together for 50 years. And, and Alan, he was a psychiatrist. He delved into the essence of who human beings were. He loved to analyze the villains of Shakespeare. Shakespeare was so great at creating villains, Iago and, and Macbeth and you name it. And so I taught that course. I taught courses on psychiatry and law. I taught courses on thinking about thinking. I taught courses dealing with religion and the law, science and the law. Uh, I taught a course on black power and, and the law. I taught a course on the law of baseball. I love baseball. And any of you want to talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers of 1955, happy to do that as well. But mostly we'll be talking about legal issues. But there are legal issues in baseball. And so we talked about that. So I love to talk about the widest range of issues. I actually wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about delicatessen. Um, I was asked to rank all the delis in New York and particularly in relation to their pastrami. And so I did. And Katz's pastrami won. Um, a couple of others that came in second or third. But uh, I don't like to limit myself. Uh, I like to try to keep an open mind on every, on every possible issue. And so, you know, I welcome you to join me in this voyage, in this exchange of views, in this seminar. Um, in my teaching at Harvard, uh, the, the Harvard Law Record quoted a student as saying, the one thing about Dershowitz and his class is there's never a right answer. Never a right answer. In all my years of teaching, I never said to a student, wow, that's a great answer. We don't need any more discussion. That answer is right. Every answer provoked another question. And questions are the essence of, of things. Um, uh, uh, Richard Feynman, uh, the great physicist who won the Nobel Prize, uh, we were friends toward the end of his life. And, and he said when he came back from school, his mother would never ask him, did you have good answers? His mother would say, 
Did you ask good questions? And uh, questions are, 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 are the essence of getting to uh, the truth. Now, we never get to the truth. It's always a quest. I call it the truthing process. Um, there are very few ultimate truths in the world. Oh, there may be ultimate science pro uh, truths. But we now learn with COVID that every scientific issue is now disputed. Tragically, COVID has brought out both the best and the worst of us. The best of us, we have had major developments in science and great breakthroughs of vaccinations and, and, and treatments and everything. But it's also divided us along uh, ideological lines on science. That science shouldn't divide us on ideological lines. It should divide us on the evidence, on what the facts are. And I'm hoping we can get into some of those issues as well. And so this is the introductory show, and I wanted to spend a bit of time just introducing myself uh, to you and um, having you understand where I come from. And um, the one thing, please don't ever try to predict what my views are going to be on a subject. You're going to be wrong. You're never going to know. I'm not predictable. I am not somebody whose views can be known based on views on other subjects, because I'm not the good Scotsman. I'm not somebody who will always toe the line. Every issue is going to be decided individually based on the facts, based on morality, based on the law, whatever, whatever the situation is. But I'm not predictable. People always say, oh, you've changed so much. Now you defended President Trump. You used to be a liberal. I haven't changed. I haven't changed at all. I've always been a libertarian. I defended the right of communists to speak at Brooklyn College when I was a student government president. I hated communists. I hated communism. Remember, I grew up in the age of Stalin when he was murdering Jewish intellectuals. I hated communism. But I defended the right of communist professors at Brooklyn College to teach literature and to teach science. One of my best teachers at high school, I was a terrible high school student, but I liked math, and uh, Mr. Wallach was my great math teacher. Why was he teaching in a small yeshiva, probably getting paid nothing? Because he was fired from the public schools because he was alleged to be a communist. There's no such thing as a communist teaching math. There's no communist geometry. There's no communist trigonometry. There's no communist uh, you know, uh, formulas in algebra. So he was a great, great teacher. And I defended the right of communists to teach. I also defended the right of Nazis. Nazis! People who want to kill me and kill many of my relatives. I defended their right to march through Skokie, Illinois. My mother called and said, Avi. My name was Avi when I was growing up. I changed it to Allen when I went to college, but my name was Avi. She said, Avi, what side are you on, the Jews or the Nazis? I said, Mom, I'm not on the side of the Nazis. I'm on the side of the First Amendment, she said. Yeah, I'm your mother. Don't give me that. You're either on the side of the Jews or on the side of the Nazis. So, you know, I never won an argument with my mother. My mother was a terrific, terrific arguer. She would have been a great lawyer. She was first in her class in high school, the first person in her family ever to go to college. She went for a month. She went for the month of October of 1929. You know what happened in October of 1929, the Depression. She came from a poor family. She had to drop out of college go to work for $13 a week to help support 
the family. She would have been a great lawyer, and she would have been a great intellectual. She might have been the first woman on the Supreme Court. Who knows? She didn't have an opportunity. I've had the opportunities, and I hope I've made the most of it. And my mother used to call in whenever I was in a talk show and people would talk back or insult me or attack me. My mother would call in and say, no, you don't talk like that about my son. So, you know, I come from a family of arguers, people who are contentious, more my mother than my father, my brother, my kids. We argue. We, we argue. We love each other, but we argue. We argue. That's part of who we are, and that's part of what I want to do with you. Argue. Argue in a coherent and reasonable way. So let's start today by talking about an issue that's obviously very much in the news, and that is the resignation, the retirement of my dear friend, Stephen Breyer, and who will, who will replace him. So first, a little history. I met Stephen in 1963. I was a law clerk for Arthur Goldberg on the Supreme Court of the United States, and uh, Stephen was an applicant to replace me, to become a law clerk the year later, and Justice Goldberg asked me to meet with him and give him my assessment of uh, Stephen Breyer, and I met with Stephen, and I thought he was terrific. He was uh, brilliant and funny and um, uh, just, just the right person. I thought he would be a perfect match for Arthur Goldberg, and so I, I recommended him, and other people recommended him, and Stephen Breyer got the job, and he became a law clerk, and then uh, when he finished his clerkship uh, and did some other things, um, I, along with many others, recommended that he join the Harvard Law School faculty, and I was one of his big supporters, to join the faculty, and we were faculty colleagues for many years. Then we worked closely together with Senator Ted Kennedy. I was very close to Ted Kennedy, as his chief assistant would always say, whenever there was a constitutional issue, um, Ted would say, get Al on the phone, get Al. He's the only person who ever called me Al. Nobody ever calls me Al. But Ted Kennedy would call me Al. Get Al on the phone. Let's get his views. And so I worked closely with Stephen, along with uh, Ted Kennedy, Ken Feinberg, and some other people. In fact, together we worked on sentencing reform. Um, and, and then um, I helped Stephen uh, get his judgeship in the uh, First Circuit, and then helped him get his judgeship on the United States Supreme Court. I pushed very hard with Bill Clinton, who I got to know fairly well, on Martha's Vineyard uh, over the summers, and I pushed very hard to have him appoint uh, uh, Stephen Breyer to the Supreme Court. Um, in fact, the night he was appointed, he came to our house, my wife and my house in Cambridge. He lives around the corner from us, and he came over and had champagne, and we celebrated his appointment to the Supreme Court. And so I've been a strong supporter, good friend of Stephen Breyer for many years. I think he's been a really very, very good justice. He is not a radical leftist, let's be very clear. He is a pragmatic, centrist, liberal, libertarian, cares a lot about balancing constitutional rights. When it comes, for example, to the rights of criminal defendants, he's on the conservative side. When it comes to freedom of speech, he's on the liberal side. When it comes to administrative law, which he taught for many years, he supports the power of administrative agencies and wants to see deference given to the expertise of administrative agencies. I wouldn't call him a radical at all. And uh, I personally hope he's replaced by somebody like him, a pragmatist, centrist, liberal, libertarian, who leans slightly to the left rather than the right, but not part of the hard left, uh, radical, anti-speech, anti-due process group. 
So I hope the president will appoint somebody uh, like that. So what do I think of President Biden's campaign pledge? He promised that he would select only, only an African-American woman. If he had said there's never been a Muslim on the Supreme Court, and there never has been, if he had said he's never been a Muslim, my first appointment is going to be a Muslim woman. That would be unconstitutional. Why? Because the Constitution specifically provides in Article 6, no religious test shall ever be required for service under the United States. So you can't say I'm picking a person because he's a Muslim. That, that doesn't say we haven't had religious tests. For the first 125, 30 years of the Constitution, uh, virtually everybody on the Supreme Court was a white Protestant male, just as Brandeis was the first Jew. So there was a religious test before that. Um, and Justice McReynolds tried to impose a religious test. He served on the Supreme Court with Brandeis, wouldn't shake his hand, would get up every time Brandeis spoke at a conference. He didn't think Jews should be on the Supreme Court. When Justice Cardozo was nominated as well, he railed against the Supreme Court becoming too Jewish. So even justices of the Supreme Court have violated the Constitution by demanding religious tests. Um, I think it's great if there's a black woman on the Supreme Court. There have only been uh, a few women, five I think, and two African Americans on the Supreme Court. Really is time for there to be a black woman on the Supreme Court. On the other hand, I feel uncomfortable about a president campaigning to exclude everybody else from consideration just doesn't sound right. If he had excluded everybody but Muslims or everybody but Christians or everybody but Jews, it would be unconstitutional. Is it unconstitutional if he excludes white males? Um, after all, the 14th and the 19th Amendments prohibit discrimination based on race and gender. Does that apply to being nominated? I wish the president, Joe Biden, who, as I say, I've known him for 42 years. I met him through Ted Kennedy. I think in 1980, when Kennedy was running for president for the nomination against Jimmy Carter, uh, I wish he hadn't made a campaign pledge. Um, if he was going to nominate an African-American, he was going to give preference to an African-American woman. I have no complaints about that. I hope he nominates the most highly qualified, brilliant, fantastic African-American woman. That would be terrific. But to announce in advance that no one need apply uh, who is white or male, it just doesn't suit the American character or the spirit of the, of the Constitution. Um, he will nominate an African-American woman. We know what the list looks like, and it's a very good list. Um, one of them is a former Breyer law clerk. She seems uh, terrific. Um, and, uh, but so do many others, and uh, Merrick Garland would have been a terrific choice, the guy who was nominated by uh, Barack Obama, but the Republicans wouldn't give him uh, a hearing. There are many others on various courts around the country who are extraordinarily well qualified. No one should be excluded uh, on the basis of race or gender. It's ironic that the Supreme Court is considering that very issue in the context of Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, both of which explicitly consider race as a factor in admission. And the Supreme Court is about to hear an argument, and I suspect is about to rule that maybe considering race for admission to elite universities might not be constitutional. There's a difference. The University of North Carolina is a state school, and so 
they are clearly restricted by the Constitution. Harvard is a private school, but you know, Harvard is older than the state of Massachusetts and is in the state constitution and receives both federal funding and uh, some kinds of state grants as well. So maybe they're bound by the constitution as well. They certainly, as a result of receiving federal funding, can be made to eliminate race as a factor, just as hospitals that receive federal funding have now been allowed to compel vaccination as a result of a recent Supreme Court decision. We'll talk about vaccination as well and other issues, but uh, right now we're talking about uh, racial criteria in selection of, of justices. And it would be ironic, wouldn't it, if the Supreme Court held that universities are not allowed to consider race at a very time when the new justice has been appointed based on a campaign promise that race and gender would be considered. It would be interesting, ironic. There'd be nothing that could be done about it. Um, obviously, senators can vote. Already, I think, a number of Republican senators who might be inclined to vote for a Democratic nominee and would be inclined to vote for a Democratic nominee if that person were a woman and were black, already have indicated some concern about, gee, we, we don't like to be told that the criteria are racial and gender before we vote. And, of course, um, recently um, the um, majority leader of the Senate, uh, Chuck Schumer, who I've also known for many, many years, announced that whoever the president nominates will be confirmed. That's not the way the Constitution works, Chuck. Read it. You went to Harvard Law School. The Constitution says that the Senate shall advise and consent, advise and maybe consent if they choose to, on the basis of who the nominee is. It doesn't say that a Democratic-controlled Senate shall always confirm every Democratic nominee. That's not the role of the Senate. You have to consider every nominee on her and his merits. Don't announce in advance that you're going to confirm the nominee. Hopefully the nominee will be extraordinarily well-qualified, and the people on the list so far are extraordinarily well-qualified. But again, a hypothetical. What if the president were to pick somebody who was utterly unqualified? You've already committed that you're going to confirm that nominee. No, no, no. It's not the way it's supposed to work. Senator Schumer, go back and read the Constitution. Stop being so partisan. Put the Constitution above partisanship. I say the same thing to the Republicans. When the Republicans refused to give a hearing to Merrick Garland, that was wrong. But two constitutional wrongs do not a constitutional right make. Two constitutional wrongs are actually twice as bad as one constitutional wrong. And so I want to see the Constitution, the rule of law, prevail over the rule of partisanship. So this is our first show. Um, we've had one issue that we've talked about. Uh, there are going to be so many other issues. We're going to have so much fun. We're going to have so much intellectual challenge. I want to make sure that uh, you write to me, tell me what your views are, what issues you want to have uh, discussed. Uh, I know some of you are looking around at my office, and, and this is really a very interesting office. In back of me is a very original copy of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, below that is a, a copy of uh, a parchment from a very, very old uh, Torah. Um, I have fantastic pictures. I have uh, uh, great, great uh, 
issues that are part of history. I have uh, up on my wall an actual certificate um, uh, which saved the life uh, of a Holocaust survivor signed by Raoul Wallenberg personally. Uh, and one of these days when the news isn't so filled with uh, exciting issues, I'll take you on a tour of my office and, and you can see all the fascinating things that surround me. I love to be surrounded by, by beauty. That's why I married my wife. Uh, and intelligence. That's why I married my wife. And I love to be surrounded by art, and I always am, and surrounded by items that are important in my life. I work better in, 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 a, in a surrounding of interesting things. And um, so I'm going to share that with you as I share my ideas with you as well. So this is the first Dirsch show. I hope it's the first of many. I hope in future Dirt Shows you'll have more input and be able to give me uh, more of your ideas that I'll be able to respond to. Dialogue, debate, again, no censorship on Rumble. No cancellation by the Dirt Show. Come on, let's have debate and dialogue. See you next time.